Conversations podcast, The Untold Stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga Community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and I was born and raised in this community, and you matter to me and we matter to me. And so I started this podcast for several reasons, and I list the intentions at the beginning of every episode. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural misappropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. Number 11, to encourage people to do their own research to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and other therapy and support as needed, to draw your own conclusions, and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. Today's episode is number 22. And I want to welcome today's guest, Ardas Kalsa, who lives in the Austin area of Texas. She took her first Kundalini yoga class in Hamburg, Germany in 1981, when she was 21. She went back to the U.S. and moved into the Roswell Ashram just north of Atlanta in 1982. In 1982-83 academic years, she attended the Association Montessori International in Atlanta to be a certified Montessori teacher, and her plan was to teach at one of the Khalsa Montessori schools, either in LA 
Phoenix, or at Española. She went to that summer solstice in 1983 and instead was arranged to be married to Siri Bahadur Singh in Dallas. The directors of the Dallas ashram sent a telegram to solstice that year that they were leaving and it was determined that Siri Bahadur Singh would be the best choice to become the director of that ashram and she was to marry him. She then took minister vows in 1984. Ardas and Siddhi Bahadur moved to Austin in 1990. In 1995, she completed a master's degree at the University of Texas, Austin, and has had a career in government service. During the 80s and 90s, she spent most of every summer attending Khalsa Women's Camp. She also took Kundalini Yoga. Uh, she also taught Kundalini Yoga until the mid-2000s. I want to welcome you to our episode today. Ardas. Okay. Hi, good Nishan. <laughs> Thank you for can being you here. Mm-hmm. So you can hear me okay? We can. Yes. Okay. I want to thank you for reaching out and um, just starting with why do you feel it's important to share your your story today? Well, and I wanted to thank you too, good Nishan, because I think you have helped to facilitate a lot of healing as this upheaval unfolded, started unfolding. And I knew, <laughs> I didn't know this would happen so quickly, but if I get emotional, I'll just need to take a breath. And um, so I appreciate what you've been doing because I think it's been really, really helpful. You're welcome. And please take all the time you need. There's no pace we have to keep up with. And it is absolutely my pleasure to create this space. And I'm, I'm happy that people are listening. So everyone listening, thank you. And, and please perhaps think of sharing this podcast with someone that you know that might not know that it exists because hearing each other's stories does matter and it supports each other to even remember parts of ourselves that we didn't even know were there. Yes, it, it, it feels kind of early to be doing this because like my introduction, I do, I do, I do consider being in 3HO just until 2020. Even though I love a lot of people still that are, that may still continue to consider some themselves in the 3HO community, I I do not, I cannot really claim that at, at least at this point because there's too many disconnects for me to say that I want to be part of. The community, the current, the current way that the leadership is occurring. So that's why I said from 1981 to 2020, even though there's many people I love dearly. Um, so let me pause right there and just say, say that what you're clarifying is that up until 2020, you really uh, were still very much identifying within 3HO, Sikh Dharma, you were a minister within the organization. And these are all things that you could st stand by. And since 2020, 20, you have made a definitive stance that say that is not something that I can subscribe to based on what I've witnessed since uh, the unfolding and the the um, the sharing of of all the abuse stories and and the tapestry that's starting to be. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. And um... I want to thank you because I didn't say that in your introduction, but I know you wrote that that this was from 1981 to 2020, and what I heard in your introduction was that most of your life you've dedicated yourself to this path and that this 2020 
revelations really have broke your world wide open. Yeah, it was like the rug was just taken out from under me. And, um, and I think there's been many friends that we've taken this journey together in some different, you know, formats to do that. So there's been a great deal of, I think, support within my friends that were within 3HO. And I also have gratefully friends not in 3HO and also a very wonderful um, professional community that is really key for me. And also my family, my biological family. Um, and I think it's kind of hard to really understand the complexity of all of this for a lot of people, especially if, if you're not in it. And, and to me, the way to describe it is I'm trying to untangle a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And um, so I wanted to do this now though, because for one thing, especially we're in a pandemic, and none of us knows how long we might. I hope I will survive this. Um, and um, and and I, I have to, I can't help it, but I have to say, Gudinishan, we were supposed to do this a few weeks ago during the big um, uh, ice storm in Texas that that was just um, just really a what a what a trip that was. And um, so anyway, thank you for your understanding there and rescheduling. But I, I wanted to go ahead and do this and also really because I want to, there's, there's one thing I'm very clear about and that's the LGBTQ abuse that I knew even in the late 80s that I didn't agree. I'm going to call him Harbudgeon. Okay. I did not agree with Harbudgeon, but I did not speak truth to power. And I, when I started hearing, I did not know about the direct abuse I, I heard lectures where he was, where Harbudgeon disparaged LGBTQ persons, mm. and but I didn't connect with the direct abuse that I've heard on your on your podcasts, on other listening calls, that our young people were just abused significantly in very formative years and in their innocence. Mm. And that was just like, like midi pity, mm -hmm. midi pity, whether it was, I mean, I, I don't want to name a lot of names because what? I, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying, but, but I mean, that was just like, I, I didn't know that, but I, part of me was like, how could I not have made a connection that he's, if he's saying some things that he's also actually doing direct abuse, but I didn't make that connection. Mm -hmm. until I heard those direct stories. But even in the late 80s, I would hear things at, at women's camp and I would be like, what is he talking about? That, that doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't match my values. And I think that's where I also though really feel like that I experienced programming at KWTC. Mm. And I'm still very early in figuring that out. And I've been reading a lot of books and I've been trying to, I, 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 you know, I'm of course, a lot of people for a long time would say that 3HO was a cult and I would say it wasn't. And, but I do really honestly feel like now that yes, I was in a cult, a destructive cult. Mm. And I know that that's a loaded word and this is an early part of this 
for me, but I think there is documentation in the transcripts of KWTC. I have hard copy transcripts. The transcripts that are online have been, I would consider to be sanitized. Mm -hmm. They've been quote edited for clarity, but I think they've been sanitized. Mm -hmm. And for, for anything that could now be considered um, disparaging to Harbajan's legacy. And one thing too is that, and I mean, LGBTQ, I don't want to minimize what I now know and have learned and continue to learn about racism, about, of course, the horrific sexual abuse. That I don't want to minimize, but LGBTQ was something I was clear on earlier on. So I think it'll be easier for me to explain some things about that. And I do want to say too that can at I least pause one... you before you go on. Can I pause yeah. you for a second? Mm -hmm. What I hear you saying is that in regards to LGBTQ, like you can identify a place in you where you were awake and you were like, and you still didn't act. But they, right. you're also acknowledging that in regards to racism and all of the other levels of abuse that was taking place all around you that you now know was taking place all around, you can't yet identify, oh, that you can't meet it, but you know, you can acknowledge that it was happening and, and you didn't know it then, at least some part of you didn't. And now you can see that you didn't know, you weren't paying attention. Right. And, or, or something that I like, it's like the whole concept of Saturn teacher, mm -hmm. the whole concept of destiny, like, the, and I mean, some of it, like I would raise my eyebrows about very young women being married to very older men. Yeah. Which happened and a lot. And, but, and, and I, and, and I would be like, oh, that seems kind of weird, but then, oh, this teacher knows our destinies beyond, you know what I mean? I, I somehow had something that gave me a way maybe to not pay as much attention as now I wish I would have. Mm. Um, what I also hear you saying is that as you start to look into what, what quote, it may mean to be in a cult, what it may mean as you start to read these things, you can start to untangle, as you spoke to earlier, things that you might have categorized in a place in you that now can unravel and see it for what it actually was is because you've made this stance that says this is not okay and the fact right. that this is being revealed right now means that i wasn't paying attention for decades right right thank you it's a very very courageous place to stand there and just say i'm willing to expose myself in this untangling well i don't know how else we heal without being transparent. And I don't expect people to agree with me. I am one person with my own story. And whether or not somebody agrees with me or not, it, it, it's just for, for my own peace of mind. I mean, I have regrets, but if I can speak on the record, that helps with healing. And I also hope too that, I mean, I have been very respectful of, especially with the second gen, next gen listening calls, they have asked that we not reach out 
but as I tell some of my story, because I, I don't have children in the community, but there are so many children that I love and adore that are like in their 40s and 50s and 30s. And if anybody wants to talk to me that knew me, I would love to talk to any of the second gen if next gen, but I want to respect that and not reach out to them because that's what we were asked to do. And I want to say too, even though I don't consider myself in 3HO, I'm connected with the next gen listening calls. And I'll, I mean, the ones that are organized by Sahaj and Atma, I think, and maybe Satnam is the third person. So I'm still engaged with that process because I do want to advocate for reparations. What I hear you saying is that you're still very much a part of the community as the people called us, but you're making a definitive stance that I do not agree with the way the organization that I've identified with and lived my life by is handling what is very obvious a tapestry, a, a violation of so many levels that is being revealed and to not address that properly is something that you're taking a stand against. Correct. I did write a three page letter when I, I did resign as a minister. When? Um, I Well, I, I reached out initially um, at the end of 2020, but then they asked me to do a signed letter. So I actually didn't formally do that until 2021. Okay. And, and I outlined a lot of different things in that letter for the, my reasons um, for doing it. And, and um, but I had another thought in relation to that, that I, I lost the thread of, but um, so, but yes, I still, I still do identify. I, community is very important. And, and that is something that it is my hope and prayer that, and I do think like, especially in Austin, area it's very much of a yoga kind of live and let live mm. community it has been and so like and I'm kind of getting ahead of the story a little bit but but I'm I moved we moved to Austin in 1990 at the same time as Prabhupada Prakash and Chrysing who live now in Portland Oregon and she told me I could use her name okay. yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to use a lot of names but for those that I will I've gotten their permission to do that but Prabhupada Prakash and I had a motto we went by called inspiration, not obligation. Mm. Because we were, were both ashram directors. They were in San Antonio, we were in Dallas and we were already done with the whole hierarchy and even in 1990. Mm. So we just decided we're just gonna go by what we're inspired to do. Mm. Mm. Um, so anyway. Um, that's that's really beautiful. I, I, I do want you to tell us a story to context that because what I what I know that to be is that from a local level, you were living an inspired life based on what you quote thought were the teachings. And now for all this to come to light makes you realize, wow, there's been a real double life thing going on. What have I actually been into no matter what inspiration became for you? Yes, thank you. You are very, this is why it was good to do this because you're so good at contextualizing. But yes, oh, and I did want to say one more thing though before yeah, kind of please. even giving more context. And that is, I just want to, I want to put out there that at least one of the secretaries and maybe two, I can't remember for sure, 
did tell me that Harbhajan changed his views on LGBTQ later in life. Hmm. And this is before I knew of any of the direct abuse. And I wish I would have asked, well, did he ever reach out and apologize? Did he ever say any public statement that he changed his views? Because I don't know of any, but there may be something out there. But if that could be, if there is anything public that Harbudgeon did actually change his views on LGBTQ, that would be something I would be interested in knowing about. Fair enough. I think that what I've observed is that if he changed his views, it was because it was in direct relation to how it could benefit him. And that could, um, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. And other than that, I, I think that he, he changed his views on lots of things as long as it benefited him. <laughs> and I wouldn't disagree with that either. So anyway, in, in that note, you know, it's like the this the sadistic level of abuse that's been exposed in regards to his nature and what was really taking place, I think, is so troublesome that if one looks at it, if one doesn't look at it, then you know, you can tell that they haven't looked at it because it's that sadistic. Like one would have to be like, how could any daughter of our Kulsa have had that happen to them and not pay attention no matter who it was? And you just automatically know, wow, okay, that person just hasn't looked at it. Right. And, and I hope, I hope that, that I, 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 try very hard in this to keep a humility about it because I have certainly been humbled. So I just hope that there's a recognition that will help to facilitate a lot of healing. Because even though Harbhajan has died, there are a lot of people that were maybe with him that are still here. That? hundred percent i also think that there's also that the predatory formula that he yes. propagated continues yes in some teachers but also in and of itself in the teachings if they are not examined for their predatory ways so to speak agree and and so this this is like so like I said, I've been reading a lot and I, I just want to really put a shout out for probably just one book in this, in this, uh, and that is early on, I read a book by Michelle Goldberg mm. called A Goddess Pose, mm. or not A Goddess Pose, The Goddess Pose. Michelle Goldberg is my favorite New York Times columnist. And she, a friend of mine told me about a book she read, she wrote about Indra Devi a number of years ago, who was a, a really the first, from what I understand, female yoga teacher in the, of all, pretty much through the whole 20th century. Mm. And what that book gave me was the context for why I was so enamored with, with wanting a spiritual teacher. It doesn't mention Harbhajan Kundalini Yoga at all, but it gives a good historical context for, like, I will, I will agree with one of your other um, interviewees in that um, autobiography of a yogi was a gateway drug for me. <laughs> that was my Uncle Bonnie. Yeah. Yes. And I have to say this, Money and I are the same age. Oh, wow. 
I confirmed that with him. <laughs> and that was after your podcast, I realized, oh my gosh, I think we're the same age and we are, even though we had very few years of overlap. Um, Cause I didn't come on the scene until 1981. So anyway, yes, but but that was a that Michelle Goldberg's book was a great help for me to to keep me from really just losing it over all this. So um, I just wanted to put a shout out for her and for writing that book because it was very helpful. You're saying that book was helpful for you since finding out all this stuff yeah. in 2020. It's helped you kind of stabilize yourself. How could I get into a cult? Uh. How did that happen? So as your world got cracked, that was the resounding question reverberating through you was how did I end up in a cult and not know it all these years? Did defend it. How'd you defend it? Mm. Yes. So what were some of the things you've come up with? Well, I mean, okay, there was a lot of the, I, I always felt like I was born a little too late because I was felt like I would have been a great child of the 60s. Mm. And I was really more of child of the 70s because I was born in 1959. And, but there was still, I had a very, an older brother who I adore, but he was, you know, very enamored. And and maybe this is actually a good way to kind of kick off even. Please give us the yes. story. Give us um, the if I've made notes, so in case I get lost, I can. Um... You're so good that way, by the way. Like I knew how or how organized you'd be in being able to share your your story today. So a good segue, way to segue. Yes, yourself. another another advantage of having had been in government service. <laughs> so um, well, in high school, I, I did feel like I was like really a child of the 60s, even though I was really more came of age in the 70s. Um, but in high school, actually, I, I read autobiography of a yogi, and um, I my older brother started doing transcendental meditation, so I decided I wanted to do that too. So I started TM when I was like 15 or 16, and I meditated all through high school and college, and um, and actually in, in undergraduate school and actually became a vegetarian in undergraduate school. So I was already kind of getting into a sort of Eastern philosophical mode. And of course, you know, the Beatles were doing TM. And, and I mean, there was just all the whole culture around um, the mysticism of the East, I was very um, drawn to. So I did, I actually, when I was doing TM one time, I had a disassociative experience where I left my body and I, I couldn't figure out how to get back in. It probably lasted for maybe 20 sec, 10, maybe even 10 seconds, right? But to me, that was a signal that I needed to find something else, that, that TM had been useful, but I needed, there was something else out there that um, and after autobiography of a yogi, I was like, yeah, you know, spiritual teacher is the way to go. So I was on the lookout for that and had, and actually went to some different things in college um, and hadn't really found anything I resonated with um, until, like you said in the intro. So I graduated from undergraduate school in 1981. And then I had a double major in, in political science in German. And I actually went to my junior year in Heidelberg, Germany, which I which was fantastic. And so I decided I wanted to go back and live in Germany. 
And so in 1981, I went to Germany and um, my father, uh, I was actually in Heidelberg working at a at a uh, army golf course selling green fees and golf balls. <laughs> and I was, uh, I had a, a friend actually from, from my year in, in my junior year in Heidelberg that had already gone back to live there too. So we were roommates together and she was working in the commissary and I was working at the uh, army golf course outside of Heidelberg. And my father was like, not real thrilled that this was my post college work that I was doing. Um, um, so actually he met a, an executive from Stern Magazine um, in Hamburg at some business conference he was at. And so he worked this guy to give, give me an internship mm. in Hamburg. Mm. So I went to Hamburg and um, I was vegetarian in Germany at the time, which wasn't an easy thing to, to be at the time in Germany. So I found that there was a Golden Temple vegetarian restaurant in Hamburg. Mm. So I went to the Golden Temple restaurant and I saw the advertisements for Kundalini Yoga. So I thought, okay, I'm going to give that a try. And so I um, went to my first Kundalini Yoga class and it was Tut and Tut and Car. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I tuned in and, and I was hooked with the, with the tune in. <laughs> that was like, I'm there. So, so I would go to yoga class every night. I would walk from Stern Magazine, go to yoga, do yoga twice a day. And then, and then in the meantime, Stern Magazine, this was, you know, 1981. I was 21 years old. I was like... Living the life. Well, no. I, well, in Stern Magazine, I was in over my head because uh -huh. it was like this total sexist environment. Ah, okay. That's and there's a whole, I mean, there, I'm not going to get too much into that because it's not as, but I mean, I just was like, what am I doing here? And, and it was, there were many things. I mean, there were a couple of secretaries I worked well, you're with. You're talking about advertisement, you know, like if you're thinking about like Mad Men, right? Advertisement in the eighties, right? So totally the juxtaposition is really interesting. Yeah. And, and I, and there were two secretaries that really in some ways, um, they, they were trying to protect me because I was so young and vulnerable and innocent. And, and, and at the time in Germany, I think the culture really was that there was a perspective of American women okay. that, that we could be easily taken advantage of, so okay. to speak. So they really did a lot to protect me in that environment, but I wasn't really... It, it just wasn't giving me really any professional grounding at all. Sure. So, I, so, so, I, I, so I came back to the U.S. and um, I had gone to undergraduate school in Rome, Georgia, in Northeast Georgia, and I had an old college roommate that lived in Atlanta. So I came back to Atlanta and I moved in with her. But I was enamored with Kundalini Yoga. So, so I uh, and I knew from Germany that. To, to just reach out to the Liftars. And so I did and connected with um, the Liftars and the Roswell Ashram and started going to yoga classes. And um, they were very welcoming. They were very kind. I would go spend the night and on the weekends and get up and do sadhana. And I thought every ashram had musicians like Liftar. Mm -hmm. And I know now they didn't, but... Right. So, yeah, so I was 
Um, and then right into I, the magic. I was. I mean, I left Sadna and um, and I I was anyway. I was so I did. Um, my friend's situation changed, so um, I ended up then moving into the ashram in in Roswell, and um, that was 1982. And then that spring was my first tantric. And these were in the days when Harbhajan would come and we would have to contract Friday evening, mm. Saturday and Sunday. Mm. And he stayed at the ashram. And so we would do all the prep for him to come. So this was my first meeting with him. The big deal when he comes to the ashram, right? Where they clean out and the whole heads of the ashram move and the whole secretaries all move in. It's the scene. This is it's your first scene. seeing of the scene. It was the it was a scene for sure. And um, so this this so so okay so and this is where I also might get a little bit emotional and may need to take a breath. So so okay so we're at tantric and um, and this is where you also you would get in lines and and go up and see him in between at breaks right when he did tantric in person Harbhajan. So that's where you could also get your spiritual names. And so uh, that's when I, I got up in line during one of the breaks during Tantric to get my spiritual name. And I also had a question. I had stopped having my period. I had dysmenorrhea. Mm. So I got my spiritual name, which I love. I still love, love the name Ardas. And, um, and when he gave me my name, he said, you will either be the craziest lady on earth or a saint. So now it's like, of course I wanna be a saint. Mm. So I think that is a hook, mm. right? <clears throat> That's how I look at it now. Mm. Otherwise in I'm gonna be Right, in hindsight, it's like choose this or that. And if he can read the destiny, then of course I'm gonna do everything in my whole being to be a saint. And if he's painted the pathway of what it means to be a saint, then I'll do all of that. Is that what you mean? Yes. <laughs> Maybe not quite as dramatic, but <laughs> The, the inner voice is what I meant. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know that I put that much thought into it, but it was like, it was a hook. Yeah. In my opinion now. Mm. And so then, so I asked him about dysmenorrhea and, and he said, we'll have an appointment. First he said, come to a party with us. Hmm. But then one of the secretaries said, no, 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 she should see you at the ashram. Hmm. So I thought I want to go to the party, but um, it was okay. I, I had an appointment at the ashram. So then, um, so I'm, I'm there in the evening in the living room and there's maybe a dozen people there to get appointments. And one by one, he would talk to people and some people, he would be like cursing them, like every curse word in the book. And then other people, he would be like, you are the most beautiful, you know, soul or, you know what I mean? I'm not giving the exact words. And as people had these interactions with him, they would be leaving one by one. And so I was the last person there. And there were also a couple of other men in the room besides Harbhajan. 
Harbudgeon gets up and leaves and goes back to his room that was off of the living room. And, and somebody says to him, are you still gonna see Ardas? And he's like, yeah, 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 I'll be back. So he goes back, comes back out with his hair down in his kacheras and an undershirt that's like a muscle shirt. Whoa. And even while he's gone, one of the men that's in the room looks at me and says, smile. And I think about that now, Guru Nishan, mm. and it just gives me chills. You know, yeah. somebody tells me to smile, but it wasn't, it was before he came back with no, with no clothes on. Mm. I mean, he wasn't naked, but I understand. But this is my first meeting with him. Mm. And I'm here to find out why I have dysmenorrhea. Mm. So then he sits down and, and there's still two men in the room and me, and that's it. From what I remember. You're, you, you mentioned how you feel like you think about that now, knowing what you know, but at the time when he came out and could share it, you've been told to smile, like what did, what was going on in you then? Do you, do you recall or was it just blank a little? Well, I think, I mean, remember too, this is on the heels of tantric, right? Okay, good point. So we've been meditating like, and, and this tantric, this was my first tantric. One of the exercises was doing 31 minutes of chair pose when you are with your partner Ugh. like this and in chair pose for 31 minutes. Oh my God. And I did it. I'm my sure. partner sat down. Wow. I did it. Wow. So I think so I was first tantric, hard tantric. You're on the float. I mean, you had come from Germany and then you're at the ashram and then this is your first tantric. So this is your first interaction. Of course, you're just smile. Yeah, you'll smile. He comes out. Oh my gosh. Okay, keep going. Okay, so he just says to me, he says, I'm going to ask you some questions and I want you to answer me very quickly and very accurately. Whoa. And he just basically asked me my whole sexual background. No. I don't remember any of the exact questions, Guru Nishan. Whoa. And so then he said to me, after all of these questions, I don't know how many there were. He says to me, and I'm not going to use the faith that he said, but he basically said, we have to do anti-Judeo-Christian you, but he used a specific faith, but I don't want to, I feel weird about saying which faith it is because I, but he said, yeah, we're going to D, we're going to D you. you know, cleanse you of your previous faith that you grew up with. Interesting. Um, and so then we get, so then he says that, and we're going to be done with the interview. He never touches me. He just, he asked me these questions, but looking back, why didn't I say, what is this? <laughs> None of your business. And, but no, I'm just sitting there. You know, I think this is normal. This is what happens with a spiritual teacher. Right, right. The mysticism of the magic That's of this right. moment. That's right. 
This is a blessing, right? Right. Seriously. But then he never says anything about the dysmenorrhea. So I said, well, what do I do about that? Okay. Now what that tells me now is that what he was doing was not about the dysmenorrhea. Mm. It was how, uh, how vulnerable am I? Because if you think of a cult leader, they're, they know how to get at your vulnerabilities. Well, and what we're hearing is that this is part of the formula, that he would do this regularly to kind of trace whatever he was tracing to see the level in which he could penetrate or draw him into the fold. But I hear you sharing it um, in hindsight a little, like repeat, because when all this happened, did it like keep us in the moment there, if you can? A little more like when all this happened then what so like did you just leave and and then kind of file it away in your file cabinet or was this quite significant in your draw further in so i think in the moment it did it did not raise any red flags for me in the moment okay and yeah. and and when i asked him about the dysmenorrhea he said oh you know see a doctor they can give you some medicine Ah, interesting. So that was just, you didn't connect that, what he was doing to this at all either. But now you're making that link of like, oh my gosh, that was totally a grooming moment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so then I did, um, well, and I, I want, I have a key point I want to say here too. Mm. These are my notes. Glad. Good. (laughs) Um, because and, and one of the things to, to me is the whole, and this I'm still at the very beginnings of, is the whole connection with Sikh. And we know now that many of these charismatic leaders use a faith as a cover. Sure. So one of the tenets of the Sikh faith is, is that you respect all religions, right? We don't proselytize. We have a great respect for every faith. We... We are one of many faiths, but there was a lot of disparaging of other faiths. Mm. And that happened in my first, we have to de-Judeo-Christianize you. Mm. Not really, is that really a Sikh thing to do, right? Yeah, much less a ton of the other judgments and the way that judge, you know, the amount of judgmentalness we did really have that was spawned within the community as a as a Sikh minister within 3HO within, you know, this organization. Did that dawn on you? Did that did that show up for you at all early on? And you're aware, like you never thought about that. You just thought that it's not really doing the same thing as what other religions do to us. (laughs) I mean, and, and this is, and I'm just going to be totally honest here mm. because this is painful too. Yeah. I, I think a lot of this was even about privilege and about feeling better than. You better believe it. You know, white I feel like we were. Spiritual superiority, white privilege yes. all over the place. Yes. Yeah, you know, and that's been a painful... to the Punjabi Sikhs from, from right. our knowledge to the rest of humanity. Like there's yeah, we know there. we know the real exactly. way to do a non-sib and the whole thing, right? Oh, it's 
question. You know, I just, I, but I didn't. I mean, the one thing though, this was later on, it made me crazy that we were even like later on that we were not, we, we could not do rounds around the guru with gay couples. Mm. The, the, the policy was you could do a, you could marry a gay couple and this was later. But you couldn't do you couldn't do the rounds around the guru though because that would be and I'm not going to get the initials right. You would think by now I would know it because of the East the 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 the, the Sikh authority in Punjab. Apparently, it would run afoul of that if if as Sikh Dharma International ministers we would do the full blown you know rounds around the guru for a marriage. Mm. But I I thought that was BS that that we that that wasn't okay that was the one thing before i resigned that i you know was like that's wrong you absolutely knew that prior before all this got exposed is what you mean yes and then all this getting exposed has allowed you to like really pierce more levels of right things you haven't been willing to see so to speak or even feel inside yourself that's right yeah that's why i love your intention of discovering the parts of ourselves that we haven't been, yeah. So there's yeah. been a lot of that for and me. And I want to, I want to just point out that it's going back to what your original point was: was the extent of brainwashing that was taking place at KWTC, um, and how the women were trained to go there each and every year. Much less all the other levels of, of very sophisticated levels of brainwashing that are all infused into. Um, lots of levels of, of teachings in terms of subliminals and also lifestyle right. habits and lifestyle practices that was disconnecting us from our own bodies. Right. Um, even though separately these these slices or fragments of truth might have validity because they're traced back to real sources, but in this combination and amalgamation, it's actually a design that we're seeing as a predatory practice to disconnect us from ourselves so that we're not critically thinking so that we're not feeling our own emotions right. so we're not feeling our needs and wants so we don't know how to ask for it and so we learn how to you know kind of hide out in silence thinking it's our own karma and our own soul's problem yeah we're just we're we're just kind of and and we're and i was and i'll get into more of this in a little bit kind of in survival mode in a lot of ways especially early on exactly and um I yeah. want you to just pause there. I want you to just, let's just moment of silence for us all. You know, like this, that's what this formula is. It's keeping us in constant, never ending survival mode. Right. Disguised as peace, as right. light. And the right. disguise is what I think is so important because psychosomatically, We've been trained to say, oh, this sensation means X when it's actually the opposite. It's actually a trauma experience that we're calling disembodied enlightenment or something. Right. Right. And collectively, we have to own that and start feeling and let the gravity of that kind of dismember us a little bit, because whether we are actually able to notice it or at what level we can notice it in our own story, this is a part of the collective programming that it means to really look at what it means to be a member of a high demand group or a child or a product of a high demand group. 
and there's studies on this. I mean, there's studies on yeah. not just what it's like to join one, but also what it's like to be born in one and the impacts of these generational imprints on our own brain development and our social development. And I want listeners to hear this because I found it tremendously profound to read about high demand groups because yes. there quite literally is a formula. It's like a 10 point checklist and it doesn't matter the ideology. It doesn't matter what is the quote technology that's going to save humanity. It doesn't matter the practices even. The formula is very much the same. And you're referring to it in this episode a lot, Ardas. So I wanted to pause on that because you're, you're talking about charismatic leaders or, you know, this exists all over the planet and we can all find ourselves in cults and high demand groups at all levels of society. And we have to be able to recognize them as symptoms. Well, and I've been learning too, and I'm still just scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. And, and I think a lot of things are cult like, and I've also learned a distinction of what's a destructive cult. Mm, interesting. Because I think it's, it, there's, that's why I think this is so tangled. Yes. And I'm in my story, there are some very beautiful experiences I have too. Yes. So I think it's very easy then to minimize and say, well, there were so many good things. But from what I've scratched the surface so far, what I was in was a destructive cult. Mm. Make no mistake about it. Mm. And, Thank and you. If, if not for me, certainly for the things I didn't know were happening. And to me, that I, even if my experience was all blissful, which it wasn't, and maybe for some people it was, we have, this has got to be brought out into the light, the truth. That's right. And it's, so many things are just not okay by any stretch, regardless of how much good there might've been. That's exactly right. It doesn't balance, it doesn't balance. And um, it's sickening to me to think, because good in Sean, <clears throat> it, what I felt like was like all those times at women's camp that we would go touch his feet, regardless if I was never touched sexually by him, you use the word ethos. I was part of what was that ethos that that laid the, the, that laid the culture of those really horrific things to be happening. That's right. I was part of the cover is what I feel like. Mm. If that makes any sense. It makes so much sense because the way that I've experienced it in my body is it doesn't matter that I wasn't actually touched but I absorbed it as the energy that my body has held for decades, mm -hmm. even when I didn't know it was in there. So mm -hmm. not only does that make sense, but it also makes sense on the absorption level of it, that this was the permeating energetic consciousness taking place as much as any mantra that was going on. And you're pointing out just 
really important aspects to how all of this impacts all of us in the collective fibers of our of the of, of the ethos of our experience. And I will say this too with with this with 2020. Even when Prempka's when when Pamela Dyson's book came out, mm. I was my first thought was, well, yeah, you know, they well, she was an adult and they were consenting blah, blah, blah. This is my own, you know, mind. And I have to, I'm not going to say her name because, but there was a young woman who told her story publicly, publicly enough, pretty early on. And if it weren't for her, I don't know if I would have woken up. Wow. And, and, you, and I know you probably know who she is. And, and one of the women that there was one of the young women of our community that talked about um, when she had come back from India and, and, and he, not, well, she, no, she, she was molested by, by when she was a teenager and it, she was in Gudu Ganesha's podcast. It, the, the notice of her experience when Gudu Ganesha did a very early podcast her story was in there. I don't want to say her name because she's been under a lot of attack and I don't want to. I understand. I don't want to, but, but, but her, I read cause she had put it in an email. Wow. And as soon as I read what happened to her and I remember her as a child, it was like the veil had been lifted. It was like, it was like the floodgates opened. Wow. And we were having these spiritual sister Zoom calls in the Austin community at the time. And one of my friends said the word programming in one of these very intimate, we had like 10 or 12 people. We were just trying to like, oh my God, what is this? And one of my friends said programming and it, it didn't even occur to me until she said it mm. was like, that's what happened to me. And it, it didn't, I didn't, and so, but it, but it didn't take long then where it all just, it was like the house of cards just went whoop. Whoa. So, um, but I, I just am for eternally grateful to this young woman for being so courageous to say what happened to her because that's what. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. your voice and for reading being willing to read and listen, you know, because it's so courageous for people to speak out and, and um, for us to hold them, you know? Yeah. But I knew, but I knew it was true as soon everything she said. And I knew mm. without a doubt that she was telling the truth. And that was before the Olive Branch report and the whole thing. And not that I, I mean, I, the Olive Branch report, that's, that's all everybody's voice in this is critical. And though that was another definitely, yeah. Okay. So back, cause I know I was determined not to be a super long interview, but funny. <laughs> anyway, um, so I'm going to go back then to 1982. <laughs> Absolutely. So you, you come out of this, right? So you're, you're out of that first tantric, that first meeting with Yogi Bhajan. I go through my Montessori teacher training. Yeah, yep. And you, cause you have this plan that you're going to go ahead and be a Montessori teacher and go move to one of these great ashrams that have good schools because right. Phoenix was known for their Khalsa school and LA had it. So yeah. I'm just pointing it out to listeners that if you've heard in a lot of the episodes, there's Golden Temple restaurants in different cities around the world and near there's Khalsa schools. So like there's real reasons people are kind of migrating into these communities at these different eight stages. But go ahead. 
Yes. So, so I, um, well, and even before that Montessori school though, in 1982, so after Tantric, I actually went to my first solstice and then also was a children's camp guide oh. in 1982. And um, I loved my first solstice. I loved my time with six weeks with my, my kids. They were six. And um, I see some of them at solstice. And again, any of these kids, if they ever want to talk, I'm here. Um, but then I go in 1982 and 83 academic year and do my Montessori teacher training. And, um, and I lived in the ashram and, and we were packed in like sardines. And you know what, somehow we made it work. And, and and I, the people that I lived with were so good to me. And even, even the, they had small children. They had, I don't know how they did it. Mm. And somehow we made it work. We, we were so, we were so packed in, in the, in the, it was like a duplex that was made into a single family dwelling. And we had like a six day, we only cooked one day a week. And then we had all these great meals, like six days a week because everybody took their day that they cooked really seriously. We went to, we had good waras and then we would go to the movies and go get ice cream. We would watch football games. This is all in the Austin ashram. Yeah, no, this is in the, the Atlanta ashram. This is this in Atlanta, like, sorry. Like 1982, okay. 83. Right. Atlanta. So, and, and then this, this is something else that like, okay. And this, I'm almost sure that this was during this time. I can't imagine it wouldn't be. But this is as as the second next. Do you think do, is it preferred second gen or next gen? Do you, you know, know? We're really saying um, we're we're staying on the second gen and you know many generations beyond that. The 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 next gen we're feeling is confusing because there's a whole group of yoga population people that are oh, feeling okay. like they kind of represent like this next generation. But anyway, what I do know is that the uh, organizational. Reconciliation Committee is calling the children of our Dharma the, the next gen. So that's what's adding the confusion. You mean the, the, you mean the second gen? The second gen. They're yeah. call, no, they're calling it, they're calling the kids of our Dharma this, the next gen. Oh, the kids of the Dharma, they are calling the next yeah, gen. Yeah, so that's okay. making it all confusing. But anyways, let's not go there. Stay with your story. Well, but I, this is part of though, because when, what, during that 1982, 83, probably in the fall of 1982, mm. Two of the, the children in the Atlanta ashram were going to India for the first time. Oh. And we, though everybody went down, we all went down to the airport to see them off. Right, it was a big thing. It was quite a it celebration. Was a big and these, I don't know if they were seven or eight and they were bright, shine. I can still see their faces. Mm. And we were all there to see them off. They were the healers, you know, the heroes, givers and saints. And they were like, I just think about this now. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and they get on the plane and their moms sit down and just start bawling. Oh. They hold it together until their children are on the plane. So these moms loved their children. Mm and thought they were doing this great thing for humanity, mm. you know? So I just wanted to, 
point that out, that this was what we were witnessing, right? Um, during those times. And I've, I've been able to, I've had contact with both of these children as adults, for one of them, not for a very long time. And again, I'm just going to be very cognizant. I mean, if it was Livtar's, it's probably Livtar's son, I'm guessing, right? I mean, that's Sapir. And then <laughs> who else? <laughs> Some of us I, know I, really, I, I, I just, I don't know. I just feel. It's okay. I mean, if there's not a related story, it's irrelevant. But yeah, I was just putting yeah. things together that I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I wanted to say that. Okay, so yes, then. So this, so then, you know, I'm I'm thinking I'm going to go to to uh, teach in one of the Khalsa schools after I finish my training. So I get so then so I get I travel to L.A. and to um, Phoenix. To I'm pretty sure I also traveled to Phoenix. I'm not sure that I did. I know I traveled to L.A. But I get calls from all three schools saying, oh, Harbudgeon said you could come teach here. And I'm like, well, I can't teach in three places at once. <laughs> so I call the secretaries and say, what does he want me to do? And they say, he'll let you know at solstice. So, but, but I, anyway, so yes, but, but. Huh. Uh, Interesting. Yes. So, so then I am, um. But one thing I do want to say, though, this is something I heard later on, is a lot of times Harbejan really told people what they wanted to hear. And it wasn't unusual for him to give conflicting information, mm. is from what I understand. Mm. You mean you just heard from other people as they've been piecing things together, so to speak? And even I heard that even from one of the secretaries that he would be, but it was all under this whole auspices of you know, the spiritual teacher, the... I think it just adds to the mysticism, you know, so then you're kind of like, oh, is he really telling me my destiny or is it, did it, you know, and, and it's interesting. Yeah. Yes. So then I am at Solstice in 1983. And this is when we did five days of white tantric yoga. Mm. And this was also the days you didn't get tantric burgers. So you're getting up, you're doing sadhana, you're getting your garlic soup for breakfast with your two bananas and two oranges. And you are, you don't bring in snacks. There wasn't a, a yogi tea cafe. You couldn't go get, you, you didn't have yogi tea. You didn't go buy snacks in the bazaar. Waguru Chews didn't come till a couple till later, no, huh? I, can't remember. I, don't think I had Waguru Chews, they were around. <laughs> I don't know if they were around in 1983, but things over time. That's but true. You had five but I get what you mean. Like you're you're speaking to all of the kind of the comforts that people witness at tantrics these days. In the early days, you're just talking about it was full on silent, full, full on diet. You were you were hoarding those oranges and bananas to get you to the day through the day until you got your mung beans and rice after tantric. And those tantrics could last a really long time. And you're, so you're doing that for five days. Mm. So the fifth day of tantric, I am, I, and this is when there was the cabin that Harbudgeon would have appointments. So the last day of tantric, I get a call that I go have my appointment. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to find out where I'm going to go teach. Montessori. Mm-hmm. 
And so I'm sitting on the steps of the cabin and then Livtar comes up to me and says, there's been a change in plan. Interesting. And he said, he didn't say Harbudgeon, but he said, he wants you to get married. So I'm like, I am, I am like out of my body, Guru Nishan, right? After five days of tantric, mm. after, you know what I mean? It's like, totally. but I've already decided, this is how I've already been conditioned. I already decided I wanted an arranged marriage. I did not know. I never asked. I, I didn't think I was ready for that. I was 23. But even in my mind, I thought I, when the time came, I trusted Harbhajan more than I did myself. I lost my critical thinking flag in that because I yes. think this is a recurring theme. Yes. We actually didn't have self. What right. we identified as self actually was him in taking place, our place. He did. He said, he said he didn't initiate students, but on the other hand, so many of us were taking Amrit. Hmm giving our heads to the guru. And in some ways, at least for me, I can only speak from my own experience. He was kind of a surrogate for that, right? Mm. I'm giving my head over to this mm. greater good. Well, there was an earlier episode that, that um, I think Sahanaman had said it, talking about how what, what, what the chant, what people were really chanting to wasn't the guru, it was chanting to him. You know, that he had actually created this like synergistic kind of and, and just in the whatever the psychosomatic disconnect of that is, it's just a really interesting thing when it comes to whatever level of brainwashing that is, you know, it's to me, it's this is the entanglement. Exactly. And and so I go and meet my potential husband, Siri Bahadur. Wow. And um, he's with Sadhu, who was in Houston at the time. So, so Saib Singh and Carr, who were in Dallas, I, I met, ended up meeting Saib Carr, but I never did meet Saib Singh, I don't think. Um, but they had sent telegrams, or they sent a telegram to Solstice to say they were leaving. Like leaving the path. Leaving, leaving yeah, path. we're out of here. So they're in crisis control, basically, behind the scenes, but you don't know. Right. Okay. So between, I guess, discussions with Sadhu, I would assume, because this is when there were still regional directors, right? Mm -hmm. And and Sadhu, I don't think, was a Mukia Singh Saib. I think he was a Singh Saib. And he left, if not in the 80s, in the early 90s. But, um, but he was sort of, I guess, in any way. So he, I guess, was with Siri Bahadur, to figure out who then, because it was decided he needed to be married, Sir Bahadur should be married if he was, well, Sir Bahadur was gonna be the ashram director then. And then- he was gonna take on that role, he needed right. to have a wife, right? Correct. So they preferred them to be married, I guess, is what I was, is what the story was told to me. I don't know exactly, I, I don't know exactly how it ended up that I got connected with Siri Bahadur. Maybe Sadhu might have known Livtar. At first, I thought maybe there was a list, but I asked my husband about that, and he wasn't quite sure if there was really a list. Anyway, it's a little bit nebulous mm. as to how they they ended up getting us two together. But then we were taken to see Harbhajan 
and he said we were a good match um and then he said that um it, they said so they were asking well when should they get married should they get married in houston or atlanta or dallas or whatever something like that and this was friday night friday evening and he said no sunday wow so this was like 36 hours later that he said we should get married mm. so sir Bahadur and i said okay wow and i still think i I was not in my body. I actually don't think I ate for even, even though we were just done with tantric, right? And everybody was going to Matilda's and everywhere else. I couldn't eat. I don't think even until a day or two after I got married, mm -hmm. but I wasn't scared mm. at all, but I think I was just not in my body, you yeah. know? I, yeah. And I also just want to point out that just like the narrative you've shared really makes so much sense because it's just like the mysticism of like life and the community and then also what you shared about like this kind of original thing he said you'll either be happy or, or not or whatever right that one thing all of this kind of weaves this tale of even the leaving you not sure what location you're going to go teach and then so you're already open to anything like you know it's it's states of openness almost right states of of non-groundedness right as if this is opening to all of like whatever my destiny is when reality is it's leaving us leaving you exposed to his whim of where he wanted you to go or something and this was already way part of the culture right exactly I mean, this so is many, normal so many i had already heard about so many different arranged marriages and this was, and, and this was, I mean, I actually felt pretty special. Yes. That, oh my gosh, I don't have to wait to get married. I can get married right away. And I'm you know pointing I mean? that out so importantly because you weren't, not, you weren't scared because this is normal. In I, fact, not only is it normal, a part of you is looking forward to the day when you get this too. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so yes. Yeah. So then, and I had already, I had already planned to stay for women's camp that summer. Mm. My father actually paid for me to go to KWTC because mm. I had asked Harbejan if I should be a guide at children's camp again, or if I should go to women's camp. And he said, if you could go to women's camp, go to women's camp. So my dad paid for me to go. And, and this isn't, you know, this is interesting because I sort of, my dad wasn't like one of the things he said to me when I first got into this was like, well, how are you going to get a job if you wear pajamas all day? <laughs> <laughs> but then over time, I think because I didn't need my father's approval anymore, I, I sort of put Harbudgeon in his place. My dad and I ended up actually having a, ended up being very at peace with each other by the end of his life and just had this great love for each other. And I don't know, honestly, if that would have happened had I not had this other father figure in Harbudgeon that I could let go of my need for my fa own father's approval. It's just this like weird- like You transferred that need yourself. Yes. Well, cause I mean, that's this longing to belong, right? This longing yeah. to fit in. Yeah, so, so there was no, so I didn't have anything separating my father and me from just having this, connection with each other over the years which was very 
just a very beautiful thing to have. And I'm grateful to have that. So anyway, it was just this, but he paid for me to go to women's camp because I wanted to go. And so I was at women's camp for six weeks after I got married. Mm. I forgot what my husband looked like by the end of the six weeks. We wrote each other every day. So that's how we got to know each other. Wow. And so then I went to Dallas after to be with this man and he and I just started figuring each other out. <laughs> and to be the directors of the ashram. And to be the directors of the ashram. Which is also significant. So there are two other men besides my husband that were there at first in the Dallas ashram, this big house in old East Dallas. Mm. And it was a money pit. And we were, this is when survival mode really starts. Mm -hmm. So I have to tell you this story. <laughs> this is an example because people wonder like, how could we not have known some other things that were happening? That's what I was going to ask real quick. Who was the other directors that left that you didn't know? Saib Singh and Saib Carr. So you never met them. You never heard why they had left. At I this don't know time, why they didn't know. But Saib Carr did reach out to me and just welcomed me and she helped me to like i was i was though shell-shocked right i am like i didn't even think of questions to ask her she was telling me like where to go to the natural food store and and just about the neighborhood she gave me some recipes this is what i remember so i don't know why they left and um so this house though like this house for example was this this big, huge mansion that had been divided into a lot of different apartments. And then some of those apartments were functional, some weren't. So really there was only one functional kitchen, but we really couldn't even heat the whole house. We had like French doors. We would have to put our coats on to go from our bedrooms to go to the kitchen. <laughs> so, and this is a true story we had a major rat problem oh, no. and we had this thing where like there were a few of us including me that could sign checks but we had to have a certain number of people agree for any expenditures it wasn't just people who signed checks could just buy things without checking with other people and at one point in the dallas ashram there were seven men and me wow so we had this rat problem and we had to do something about it. These guys decided up in the attic, they were gonna set up buckets of water, set up planks, put peanut butter on the planks so, so the rats could walk the planks, eat the, pink, uh, the peanut butter and drown in these buckets. <laughs> this is what we were dealing with. And after this, and the the rat problems were problem was so bad, rats were eating rats. Oh my God. And I said, forget it. I said, I don't care who approves this. I called an exterminator company and said, what can I do? They said, we have this poison called vengeance. And I said, how soon can you get here? <laughs> and they came and we put out poison and we got rid of the rats. So you're saying nobody wanted to use poison because they wanted to... I think it was more like this fun fantasy, honestly. Mm. These guys were like, oh, let's, 
I mean, another true story. I just can't help myself. So we, we really needed a paint job. And so this is when siding was the big deal. So we would have people that wanted to sell siding that would come by our place and want to sell siding. And one of the men at the time was a wheeler dealer. And so he somehow, in order for us to get a bid, got two sets of knives just to get a bid for getting siding that we had no way of buying siding. And the, these guys literally set up on the shed in the backyard, a way for them to throw knives at this shed. <laughs> so it was just... <laughs> I see. I mean, it was just wild and crazy. This is how the community was growing, eh? <laughs> but I will say this though, we also had some really fun times. We had this guy, such a cool guy. His first name was Michael. And there was one of the men that had a lot of money that was living with us for a time that set up an attic room that had this really cool like wooden floor and set up his own space up there. We used to have sock hops, sock hops up there with a strobe light and we'd invite yoga students to come. And, and this guy, Michael would be a DJ and we would have sock hops up in the attic. So it wasn't, I just, so it wasn't all bad. What I'm hearing too is is also kind of like um, as an ashram location, so people would start practicing, say Kundalini yoga, and then kind of go to solstice and maybe do a tantric, and then want to come and do sadhana regularly, and maybe live in the ashram, and kind of this energy of the of how the gathering took place, and that each right. ashram represented for lack of a better word they brought their crew to the solstice and you went there how many people from our ashram could we get to solstice this year like and that I don't, stuff? I don't ever real remember feeling any pressure around that but just in general i'm more pointing out um the community feel like that this is a, a, a this is a part of what solidified this becoming a life and being feeling like it's a legitimate community right absolutely and we were the only yoga in town we we had like a listing in the yellow pages it wasn't even an ad and we had a sign out front our yoga classes were full all the time mm. we were like the only yoga in town for a long time and we had lots of really full classes and we would have people come spend the night and do sadhana. So, you know, somehow we, I don't know how we did it, honestly. So, but we had this whole thing going. So there were crazy things that were happening, but there were also really beautiful things happening at the same time. Sure. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Thank you for painting, painting the picture. So in the, and then the meantime too, I, I, I had two, work experiences in Dallas. And the first one was very important. I worked for a podiatrist, a foot doctor. Mm. And he had two offices and one was in a, a gay, a predominantly gay area of Dallas called Turtle Creek. And so I was working there when AIDS was emerging. Mm. Because these, these gay men would come in and have Carposi sarcoma on their feet. Mm. Those the legions. I don't know if you remember Carposi's. I didn't and, know her name that, but I remember the legions. Yes. And so, and these men were so beautiful and so kind. Mm. And that was when AIDS was just, it wasn't even 
it was just beginning. And I remember we had to change our practices for cleaning our instruments and stuff, right? Mm. Because of the um, because of the contagion of HIV. Mm. Um, but I, I mean, I even got poked by needles a couple times, but I was okay before we changed our protocols because I would help with surgeries. Not, I didn't get poked by needles in surgery. It was more when I was cleaning up because one of the things I did was do minor assisting in, in foot surgery. Now, but this I, isn't a dharmic company. You're just talking about an experience that you had working. Uh, that and you- why the LGBTQ is such a theme for me. Okay. Because of the horrific, mm-hmm. horrific things our LGBTQ community has gone through through the years, through the 80s especially into the 90s that that I had very intimate connections with and still didn't wake up when I was hearing the abusive language at KWTC. Mm. This is why this was such a hard thing for me to come to terms with myself with because I had these very beautiful experiences that didn't match with what I was hearing from my teacher. Sure. So anyway, I wanted to say something about that. A shout out to my you know, beautiful people. So then in 1990, so my husband was also in CBB. And the Bahadur that Saad Hanuman mentioned. CBB, I don't even know what that is. The Community Business Bureau that Saad Hanuman talked about. Thank you. My husband was also in. As a a salesman? Yes. I'm not going to get into the details of that. But except to say that Saad Hanuman mentioned Bahadur in Texas in his interview, and that was my husband. Got it. Making the connection. So there was an earlier episode with Saad Hanuman saying, and he was talking about be, um, how these companies were set up, um, like basically so that really good salespeople from all over our community kind of like were independent contractors, but percentages went directly to the organization or to, right. to YB. Anyway, you can listen to an earlier episode, but her husband was linked into that. Thank you for the context. Yes. So um, given that the natural foods industry was based in Texas in Austin, Mm. that's how we moved from Dallas to Austin. Got it. Because they wanted Siri Bahadur to be in the heart of the natural foods industry. So we moved to Austin in 1990. We, we live in this mold infested two bedroom, one bath house, but we were like, oh my God, this is awesome. <laughs> to actually be living by ourselves for the first time in our marriage. Wow. But we were hand to mouth for many years and a lot of because of the, but this was my husband's choice. He wasn't recruited into this. He was looking for a, kind of career path. And so when this was just starting, we were like, okay, maybe this will be a good thing to do. Sure. He didn't have the sales history Sat Hahnemann had already had. Sure. So anyway, but, but But yeah, he was many, he was one of the the many different sales, but that developed their net with their territories and really helped to establish the natural food industry and how our organizations really dominated those through the efforts of this sales group. Yes, and and Sat Hahnemann's already done, and if my husband decides at some point, he can tell his story, but just to kind of provide a connecting thread. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. Yeah. So then, um, 
and we moved at the same time as proper precaution crossing to Austin in 1990 and proper precaution. I are both planning to get pregnant. So I'm, a, I'm 30 at the time. She's a little older than me. And she said I could use her name. She lives in Portland, Oregon. Now she gets pregnant. I don't. Mm. And this again, I think is con continued the hormonal imbalance that even started with <laughs> the dysmenorrhea. Right. So, um, anyway, so then I decide, okay, I'm not getting pregnant. So I'm going to go to graduate school. And so this is how then I end up getting into government service. I worked for the state. Um, and I worked in also nonprofits first and then for at the county level. And then I ended up 15 years with the state. And then I still do contract work now. And um, one of my jobs when I was in graduate school, because I went part time was at a, an organization called the HIV Wellness Center. And this is now when AIDS is just, HIV AIDS is full blown. And I was working at the HIV Wellness Center. It has so many people were dying. Yeah. And I was a, I was, I got trained in peer counseling through work it was what then the center for battered women and i had this beautiful woman that i worked that i got trained with there so when i saw this job advertised for peer counselor trainer i wanted to do that <clears throat> so i went and did this job interview and i worked with these very very beautiful men that were supporting each other doing peer supports and it was while I was there, this would have been in the early 90s, that really the, the medications finally, like I remember this one man who really thought he was gonna die and he was so brave. Mm. And then the AZT drugs came just in time mm. and he ended up living. Wow. But then he did end up dying maybe about 10 years later because he was already like his T cell counts were really low. So he did end up, you know, still dying maybe 10 or 15 years later, but way he lived way longer than he thought he would. Mm. And this is still why I'm going to women's camp and I'm hearing this BS mm. and I just no, I don't know why I get in Sean. I don't know why mm. I didn't speak. I did. I did later on talk to friends about it, but I, I can't explain it. I wish I could. Mm. I hold you there. Mm. I want to just speak to the power of our capacity to hold and hide information we're not ready to process mm -hmm. and that it's the power we have in our own nervous system to do that out of mere survival i i think that's a good way to explain it i really do so i, I want to pause there and just go back to an earlier point you made about how you just were in pure survival mode for so long 
And I know you're, you're continually painting the picture for us and I know you'll carry on. I just want to pause so we can really feel the weight of the story so far, you know, and how do we not see what's right before us? Well, when we're in full survival mode. Yeah. So, so we're, we're living our lives. And, um, one other seminal thing happens, um, that I want to, well, not just one, but a, but, um, you know, remember 9-11-2001, this is at a time too, we were doing good Juarez and, and we were very closely connected with the Punjabi Sikh community because we had very few Sikhs in Austin. We weren't just doing our own. It was mostly really a yoga community and um, which was fine. I mean, we, I never saw, I, I realize now how much it's been intertwined, but I always saw the yoga and the Sikh as having some overlap, but not dependent on each other. Mm. So we were doing um, Gurdwaras regularly and on 9-11, we did, right after 9-11, we had some of our Punjabi community that were being harassed. Mm. And we did this really beautiful compot at our house. Mm. And one of the things because of COVID I have not been able to do is to really, I haven't been connected with the Punjabi Sikh community for a long time because I ended up with really, really, really horrible perimenopause, which brought me to my knees. Mm -hmm. And I just basically, again, survival mode, right? I just couldn't do anything except go to work and come home. Mm. For years so I just stopped everything then and so I lost a lot of connections with the Punjabi Sikh community because I wasn't going to Gurdwaras anymore I wasn't really and that was really why at the time but I want to reconnect with them because I'm really curious I don't know what they're going to be thinking of all this if they know about it and what I want because I do think appropriation occurred and just to kind of see, you know, I, I think the... Yeah, I mean, not only has it occurred, it's occurred on a very complex amount of, of layers and levels. Uh, yes. And, and, and full-on exploitation in so many, so many ways. Um, right. What I, what I want to ask, if you don't mind, is you had mentioned, I forget what you called it, the and, and I know it was an endometriosis, it was the... Well, what was dysmenorrhea. the dysmenorrhea did you ever end up getting that checked out and and figure out with your health or did you end up just kind of like go in the yoga path and never looked at that well actually what ended up happening was i went to a doctor and he and the in, in atlanta at at harbudgeon's direction and he was like the doctor was like um why, why are you even worried about this? It seems like this is something you should be happy about. And no, there's no medication for you. Like, why would you be happy about it? I mean, I guess this was a male doctor that thought maybe having a period would be like this oh. really great thing for a woman not to have to experience a period oh. every month. But you weren't getting your period. I wasn't, that's what dysmenorrhea is. It's Got it. not having a period. I see. So this is what I, so you weren't getting your period and then never, and then the doctor's like, how oh, great. And then never addressed no, it. I followed was, up. Okay. I followed up with 
the secretaries to say, okay, I did what Harbhajan said. So they actually hooked me up with Dr. Saram. Okay. And he actually did end up giving me like this whole regimen of supplements and diet. And then but was I, it because you, you had mentioned at some point, this is what I'm trying to connect. You had mentioned something about having your hormones out of balance. So I got my period back, but I do think though that I had, I think that's also though why I couldn't get pregnant. This is why I'm creating the thread because I feel like also what's being illuminated is the dysregulation of diet, the over, the overstimulation, the, the uncertainty, like a part of all the things that your life is, is painting out. Also, what we're so hearing from yoga students in their bodies, too, is the dysregulation that creates in our bodies, which can create hormonal imbalances. Now, you might have had a state of imbalance, and then your life hasn't supported to correct it. Yes. And I also think that I was trying to kind of go an all-natural route of things. Sure. And maybe, and you know, it's funny, when, 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 Siri Bahadur and I wouldn't weren't getting pregnant. We would we would be like, well, are you okay? Are you okay? And we're both like, yeah, we're kind of okay to not have children. Oh. So we didn't have that real longing that a lot of people have. And you didn't go to the doctor to chart figuring out what's exactly. going on. You didn't go do testing. Exactly. And this, this is a good point because within the culture of our community, you know, on some levels, you know, even going that medical route was shunned. It wasn't looked at. And not to say that it wasn't always that way. I'm just as an ethos or an energy, right. it seems like it's along that route. Right. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I have, I mean, like, um, like the whole thing of, of being sort of in this hypervigilant. Yes. I mean, I felt so much shame my whole adult life, mm. especially as I started working more, I could not do sadhana and work full time. It was impossible. But I always felt that I was like this piss poor, you know, Sikh student that I wasn't able to do that. Mm. And I, and again, I, I, I'm hesitant to name names because different people have, but, but there was one person who people come in to do workshops and different people at different times, some of the teachers that came through and everything ended up being very helpful on some things. And I remember somebody when I was like feeling like, should I quit my job because I, I can't work and do sadhana. So I thought maybe I should quit my job and, and somebody encouraged me not to do that, which I'm very grateful now. Somebody critically thinking. Yes. <laughs> and so anyway, it, but it was, I felt like I was always less than because I couldn't do it all. Mm. And what a theme, you know, again, it's just yeah. a resounding, echoing theme of just, you can't do it all. And, you know, my own soul, my own karma. And, you know, it's like this constant keep up and so fascinating how something can be held in a context of like that's such a wonderful mantra to live my life by only to now see it in such a different light to be like wow maybe that's actually a state of hyper vigilance yeah wow and, and once i once i i ended up um having um severe fibroids 
and um, I it was actually because of a nurse in my gynecologist's office that really worked with me that I didn't end up with a hysterectomy, but now, but I know why women get them. I always, that was always a mystery to me. Mm. And now I know why, because, and it was also because I had a job that I, that had some flexibility and I wasn't on my feet Mm. that I was able to keep my uterus, but I do understand why women have hysterectomies. Um, because it was many, many years. I popped iron like it was candy for many, many years. But I do think the diet thing is a big deal. And and the shame around right. if you ever, I mean, and it's and 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 there's a reason why there was another name for 3HO, healthy, happy, and hypoglycemic. Oh wow. Did you ever hear that? I've never heard that, but oh, I Oh, that was like, oh yeah, that was a common. And and also because at KWTC, one of the big deals is like when we would get treats and everything. And of course, Harbudgeon loved treats, right? He loved his treats. So um, anyway, I never understood. I was like, I remember from a child's point of view, I was like, why is he drinking diet soda from this podium? And we're not allowed to have soda ever. Like, (laughs) that makes no sense. Anyone else noticing? But these things just were so normal. And then the parody, you know, kids like me would leave and they would even do whole YouTube parodies on things that just didn't make sense. And like the adults just would get offended by these parodies instead of pay attention to the fact that, no, they're actually like real true incongruencies in plain sight, folks. Yep. So, yeah, that was, I mean, and okay, so I have another key point here in my LGBTQ theme. (sighs) One of my friends, and I can't say her name, she asked me not to, but she said it was okay that I, as long as I didn't say her name. Sure. She was knowing, she was arranged to a man that Harbudgeon knew was gay and he didn't, but it wasn't disclosed to her. and even before the events of this year he came out and once that happened and she told me and she finally figured out why things in her marriage never seemed to really click Mm. Duh. <laughs> Hello. And it's like, but it, I think though the whole concept around spiritual teacher and destiny, and and I think that there were others that that happened with too. Lots of others, a long history of it. So I just was like, I just the emotional cruelty and physical health risk of that that's right psychological emotional sexual physical so the only thing worse than knowing all of this Mm. good inishan is not knowing it now and having a chance 
So that's, and, and then the other thing too, that when, when the lawsuits, so, so after Harbhajan died and all these lawsuits and everything started happening, I really started disconnecting a lot from the broader community and we were, and just really, and plus, you know, I'm going through this horrible perimenopause, so there's not much I can do anyway, physically during that time, just kind of ended up going local and just not really having a connection as much, except with friends and family, you know, with broader community, but it just, all that happened with those lawsuits just was like, what is going on here? Mm. There was so much that just was like, what? And now, of course, so much of it makes more sense now with, with all of these kids that were the second gen that was encouraged not to get an education, that was all of the, I, I, this is why I am so grateful that there, there are only a couple other people I knew in the community that did government jobs. And it is hard, hard work. And are there some slackers? Sure. But I am so grateful that I have that part of my life that is not entangled in this. Mm. Because I have a part of my life and, and because of COVID, I could stop wearing a turban without having to, because I wore a turban to work my whole career. You wore turban all the way through until you all the way through 2020. Did you take off your turban? It wasn't until 2020, but we were already virtual. Wow. And so I've told a lot of my close, because I've been working with some, we have, I mean, Texas is such a big state, but I've worked in health and human services. We are a tight community. And I did a, my last job with the state before I retired from that job was a statewide initiative. So I've got and, and so I've told some people, but there's going to be a lot of people because they loved hearing my story. I'm like, well, I got an addendum for you. <laughs> <laughs> Volume two. <laughs> so you're saying your identity in your work government life has always been turban wearing Ardas. And this is the first time in your meetings, virtually now they're seeing you. Not. So I was, I had sort of like an Ardas unplugged look. That was, was with, um, like when we were doing something more casual, I would maybe like wear a scarf with a braid sure, instead of wearing the full blown turban, but no, this, this, no you know, flowy hair. Action. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I just, I mean, you didn't It's just like, I think to kind of almost come full circle because you brought this out. I just, I, I think, I mean, I realize that I'm at the beginnings of this. I feel terrible about the rampant abuse that has occurred and want to be a part of the solution to help facilitate healing for all of us and this to me what you're doing is part of that and I have no interest in being part of an authoritarian model and we are still in that yes. to me 
with, and I know that there are people that are trying to do something within those structures. I, I, when I resigned as a minister, I was told I could put it on pause if I wanted to. And I'm like, I, I, I said, I don't see anything happening that's doing anything differently here. So no, I'm, that's not where I'm gonna put my energy right now. There's a lot of work in the world to do. And um, so, yeah, I, and I think that, okay, there's compassionate reconciliation. Where's the word truth in that process? Thank you very much. And I will say one other book that was very helpful for me very early on, which is Desmond Tutu's The Book of Forgiving. Mm. Because that gives the truth and reconciliation process. Exactly. And clear examples of that. And forgiving is not holding accountable, is not not holding accountable, right. right? It has to be initial acknowledgement before That's one right. can move into the stage of truth and reconciliation. That's right. And as an organizational body, there has not been official acknowledgement of any abuse, sexual, financial, or all the predatory abuse that has taken place. That's right. So that that is my the and and I I do I do offer up I, I also and I and there's some people I have already connected with to a degree, but there is a treasure trove of information to get at the programming through those KWTC notes because it was systematic. Mm. You go back and look at year after year, and I've just scratched the surface because it's painful to go look at. But you, but even because I, I wanted to be sure of some things before this interview, so I, I had to force myself to go back to those notes. And it's like, so there's-, there's I let myself there's, listen to that and do nothing. That's right, it's just atrocious to, to read in plain sight. Yes, mm. yes. So anyway, so yes, there's there's documentation there. I've heard where um, on some people's posts, I don't know where I read it, but somebody talking about how when they looked at the videos of the transcript, how there were he was doing signs and symbols and stuff like that, and then he would say certain things, or people that have listened to many of the lectures, how they talked about a certain formula of his languaging in the way he started, what was in the middle, and then what was at the end, and tonality and certain things. And, and I, I find that interesting. I've never gone back and looked at notes and these things, but like you said, the programming is in the proof of the pudding, which is the lectures themselves, which is this body of work. And one more thing, Siri Bade, who just passed, yeah, he was atrociously abused every summer. Oh my God, isn't that true? And his is not my story to tell. And that's why it's like, Everybody deserves their story. That's right. And, and it was my observation that he was abused from my perspective. But I don't want to, I don't know what he feels about it. So I want to honor his memory that his story is his story. But that was my observation. 
and the labor of his life being yes. spent recording and documenting everything that is now known as the body of work of of our organization and KRI and, and let us remember him today in love yes. and remember his daughters. Yes. And um yes. And all of the effort he did so selflessly. That's thank you for putting that so beautifully, Gideon Nishan. Thank you. Cause I thought that was just like the timing of that I thought was and, and especially too since our interview got delayed by a few weeks because of the ice storm, the snowstorm in Texas. So, um, but maybe it was meant to be that today was the day. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it was the wisdom of the universe, so. Timing is always in our favor if we allow it. Yes. Um, it just doesn't always seem that way along the way. You are so courageous to share in this place and I wanna say thank you for letting us witness you in the great unravel and the great untangle here. Well, thank you, because um, thank you for offering a forum of healing. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. And all listeners, um, it's such a beautiful reminder to just know that what we remember along the way is enough and trusting that what is supposed to reveal itself will come but really letting ourselves be seen and heard and witnessed at the stage we're in is so invaluable and can offer a new lens into ourselves and to each other. I know your story did that for a lot of listeners today. Well, I mean, I, uh, I appreciate it. And, and I, I think our conversations will continue as a community, whether or not they are in these public forums or as our, our support circles continue and um when we start to ask the questions and break the silent code and start right. to speak about the shame that i've held so arduously all by myself while you may be holding that amount of shame or more and this is how we start unraveling it by saying wow this isn't mine to hold it's not that's yours right. to hold ah this happened around and among all of us that's right that's right I want to parallel that, that the amount of shame I found in my body over the last two decades before all this got revealed was astounding to me. I did not comprehend it. And I know that if I wasn't being guided by my own inner soul to start looking at it and approach my body in a different way and start looking at some of the sexual shame I didn't know I was harboring, um, I wouldn't, I would have health problems that I know would have debilitated me along the way. And it's, it's profound to witness this level of opening because it gives us a chance to say, what has been happening? Like, I didn't know I had PTSD. I wouldn't have called this hypervigilance. I thought this was like enlightened state of kundalini energy or something. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's, it is, um, I, I'm with you and, um, a shout out and I'm not going to say her name, right? Zaminia. Is that how you say her name? Oh, Jimena. 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 Yes. Because I, after her, her, yes. uh, interview, I read women who run with the wolves. <laughs> I think yes. I'm in that one too. Wilding, so, so, rewilding. Um, Yes. So paying all that forward in, yes. in these things that are helping us, I think is a great, yours is also a, a great venue for that. And, and one more thing, I can't help it. 
um, Diana Rose. Yes. I found when I was looking at my notes, the, sh the shaman conversation that she brought out in her interview. I found it in the notes. Wow. The one oh, at KWTC. Yes. Wow. So I was like, wow. So shout out to her too, because I, 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 I think she Yeah, it's so beautiful how when hearing somebody else's story and then you can verify your own timeline along somebody else's timeline. And I want to say that, I want to say on that note, I feel like my story, even though I was a child, really kind of timelines yours a little. I have a brother who's in Hamburg uh, or who started, you know, was in, really? in Germany now. So shout out to my brother. I know he's listening, Kieran. And um, he also practiced there in Hamburg and uh, many years How later. And then um, also, I think you were a guide at my children's camp because I must have been there around 83, 84, but I was a young, like five or six toddler. So, so was, that I, 80, was that the summer of 1982? It would have been like maybe 83. So I was in women's camp at eight, in 80. By then, okay. Um, yes. But anyway, these are just interesting things. What I yes. find so fascinating about these times is like, wow, you really do have connections with children and children really connect with you, even if it's not in their conscious memory, it's in our body memories of like, wow, there are people we know. And now that can also be bad in the sense that there was violation occurring too. But on the other note of that, there was also genuine love and bonding taking place of genuine hearted people that were there to serve and really live up to their own integrity like you're speaking to. And our community is made up of that. And, thank, and that is exactly why if any of those kids remember me, I literally have my paper copy of like our women's camp. Like I have the pictures of us, of each and of our missiles. Wow. I wow. still have that. So I remember the shields are... we made and yes. Um, and, if and, kids... and also my sister-in-law came out of the Austin ashram. Who and and Evil. that is it was cable. Yes. And so I knew you must know her. And so just I as you were telling your story, I was like, what? Is Mangala your brother? So he's my brother. When our parents married when we were both three. So he's your stepbrother. Step but we grew up together yes. and he went to India. So we're quite close. Yeah. And Mangala and Cable lived in Austin the first few years. So I got to know Mangala a bit <laughs> also. And I'm still in touch with Cable yeah, through Facebook a little bit, the little barely amount that I put on Facebook. So yes, that was so funny too to have me money talk about Mangala and Cable's wedding, <laughs> and that was right after 9/11. And and I just remember we were it was so courageous of her just to head on to New Mexico for her wedding. Yep, uh, a lot more of us I think would have ended up there if it weren't for 9/11. But anyway. Um, yeah. And, and again, I just want to point out, um, cause you brought up Jimena and then, you know, Cable's an example, but other yoga students that have come into the fold over the decades, you know, there is a mystical kind of like, oh, specialness to the way that these historical stories were told or the way the ashrams were formed and right. in the early years. And we all camped out and there were rats and, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm pointing that out now because in the marketing machine that I witnessed over the last number of years before all this really blew open here is that yoga students literally would do that. It was like 
start wearing white, change their name, want to move into an ashram, go into an experience, you know, have this kind of like la la land energy, which is no different than what you were just painting of your experience through the 80s and 90s. And yet that formula of let's paint the la la land of how special this amazing spiritual teacher was and how he's now embodied through these amazing teachers that are carrying on the gold. And again, I'm not trying to be cynical listeners. I'm pointing this out that this is actually how it's passed on through right. the teacher training network right. right now in present day. Right. This is not a mystical, expansive uh, illumination done by me. It's actually what we're bearing witness to. And it's not ending just because we're having these conversations. We have to bring these conversations into more spaces so that it can't just be a machine that swoops people up into the light-washed world of saying everything's so wonderful when really our community has a lot of wonderful things that we created and a lot of sadistic, abusive things that what we thought was a spiritual teacher was actually a master manipulator and has brought forth a lot for us to untangle in our collective lived experience. I, I absolutely agree. Thank you. I appreciate how well you do to kind of make, make those connections and, and those summaries. So with all the things that you have been connecting over all of these interviews. And, and my hope is that especially around KWTC that that may facilitate further conversations there because there's a lot there. You are speaking the truth. And I just love how you're really pointing that out and you're making it a place of your inquiry and a place that you're diving more into. And, and hopefully listeners that have their notes can kind of spawn new creative tapestries to let us all see more clearly through this hazy place. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you. Um, thank you, Gudina Sean. It's been so good. It's been so good. I want to um, just ask before you introduce your song is there anything lastly that you just feel on your heart that you want to make sure you share to wrap things up here because you you really gave us a lens into wow up until 2020 the end of it where you put in your resignation as a Sikh Dharma minister and you've taken off your turban you've made a definitive line in the sand that says I know what I stand for. And now that I know what has taken place all this time, I can't stand in that same place. Yes, I, I didn't know better then, but I know better now. Mm. Beautiful. And I, I think there's, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm, I work part-time, so I have a lot of time to study things and learn more and heal and and also be there for other people who are also trying to do that as well. So, so I'm grateful for all of that. And as we continue this journey and yes, my song. <laughs> Tell us why you chose Bohemian Rhapsody. So one of the things that we were told, at least I was told when I first got into 3HO was sort of the dangers of rock music. And I had this awesome record collection that I gave away to a college roommate 
who was so thrilled to take on my Grateful Dead albums and I had a great collection. Um, so I kind of missed the Queen era that was going on in the 80s. Mm. I can't remember when Fr Freddie Mercury died. I can't remember what year it was. But I certainly know, but everybody knows the song, I think, Bohemian Rhapsody, that has any connection with popular music. And of course, I saw the beautiful movie about Freddie Mercury, and I felt like it was like my life in relation to LGBTQ lived out through his, what he contended with. And, and he said about Bohemian Rhapsody, he was asked, I read that, what does it mean? And he said, it can mean whatever anybody wants it to mean. So it reflects to me how all of our stories are part of this story that can maybe turn into a beautiful song. Mm. And, and just shout out to Freddie Mercury with the, the beautiful example that he gave in his life for talk about what having to deal with tons of challenges and Yes. So that's my reason for my song. Mm, thank you. Thank you for that beautiful share. And let us listen. And for copyright purposes, we don't listen to the whole song, but you can listen to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast playlist on Spotify. The link is below. You can also contribute to this podcast by making a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com forward slash uncomfortable conversations. This has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast. The Untold Stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga Community. Thank you so much for listening. Please do me a favor and share this podcast. We are available on all podcasting platforms. And if you would like to be a guest on the podcast, please send me an email at gn at gurunishan.com. I want to thank our guest today again, Ardas, for being here. And we'll see you again on the next episode.